we will see how that goes. So I wish you all a, a good morning today, and I hope everything has been going well. We're going to be studying today not in Matthew chapter 7. I just couldn't really pick a verse in the chapter where we'll be studying. But today we're going to be studying in Luke chapter 22. And we're going to be talking about the topic of friends. And you know, friends are something that we deal with at a very young age and interact with all the way until the end of our lives. Many times in our lives we have best friends, people that we know that we call friends, and then just maybe acquaintances, but if you're really correct, then you might call them acquaintances, but normally you just say, we're like, I just kind of know them, sort of friends. And you know, maybe as you get older, you start talking about boyfriends and girlfriends and that kind of thing. You know, friends just start evolving, and hopefully you get to say you get to marry your best friend. And sometimes, as I learned this week, sometimes our closest friends are those with four legs. But what truly does it mean to be a friend? I mean, even if we call people things that are not humans friends, so what does it mean? Well, at least in the Bible, it's used in a variety of manners in English translations. Old Testament and New, this word appears throughout. And as we commonly use it, it can be referred to as someone who's close to someone in a relationship or someone who is just part of their group or posse, per se. But as I have already said, we tend to use qualifiers. You know, it's not just that you're my friend, but you're my best friend. And whether it's people who we spend time with at school or at work or outside of those functions, Generally, what links us together is some kind of shared experience. And that's where we're going to go with. When we have friends, we usually relate about what we talk about, right, or what goes on in our lives. We have something to link us together, whether it's church or whether it's what high school we went to or where you work at. But that's where we're going to see these friends today in Luke 22, a shared experience that brings them together. And that shared experience for the men in this passage is being called to be apostles. Now, they're not just regular disciples, right? Jesus specifically chose 12 men to be of his innermost followers, the people who were with him on a day-to-day basis. And that shared experience is how we're going to consider these men friends. So we're going to look in this chapter, and we're going to look at what can we learn? What type of friends are there? What type of friends... Are we? And see how we can take away from that. Now, this study is going to be a little bit different as you're following along in your Bibles or up here than what we normally do in where we go from the start of a passage to the end. And because we're talking about different people today, we're going to talk about them in their entirety from the start of the passage to the end about who that person is and then go back up to the top and talk again about that person. So just follow along. I'll make sure to announce the verses as we go through. And if you would, and if you don't, maybe you want to take some notes so that you can hopefully remember this better and or help people when they ask about verses like this or talk about this. So we're going to start today with Judas. And I know you might say, whoa, what you doing there calling him a friend? And you got to remember our definition, right? We're talking about people who have a shared experience. And we're also trying to approach this. You got to forget what you know about Judas at this point. Judas is just one of the 12 before we get into this chapter as you're reading God's word. If you're reading it for the first time, you're reading and you hear about this guy named Judas. And so we get to this chapter. So we're introduced to one of Jesus's closest friends in his life. And so that's where we're going to start with Judas today in verse one. 
And that says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. And so the first thing that we're going to talk about is how Judas was a backstabber. So Judas betrays Jesus. Behind his back he goes and talks to the people and decides to give him up. We all know those kind of people, those friends, you know, that turn on us. Maybe they tell a secret that we had that we didn't want to come out, and they tell people and spread it. Or the people who turn on us and various other reasons. I experienced this at a very young age. Now, I was at a book fair, and I saw a plastic ring that I wanted. So a friend and I, at least what I considered to be a friend at the time, we decided to steal it. Now, I didn't understand that stealing was wrong. I was only six. But I did understand that when he ratted me out later that day, it was not fun to have someone betray you. And I felt very unhappy with this person. I was like, I trusted you. We stole things together. Now, as I got older, I understood, yes, stealing is wrong. But for Christ, this level of betrayal is among anything, nothing we can ever deal with. I don't ever know of situations where we will get to have this opportunity to betray someone for their life. You know, Judas is giving Christ up. And when we make friends, right, we try to give trust in them. Judas was part of the inner circle that went with Jesus everywhere. And he knew some of the things that people wouldn't know, specifically where Jesus was going to be. And then we see the next part is that Judas is a sellout. Selling out adds on to the despicable nature. It wasn't that Judas was willing to give him up. But instead, it was that Judas did so for money. He wanted to make a quick profit off of Jesus. Now we can speculate what he was actually thinking, but we never really know because the text doesn't tell us. But we know that Judas was a greedy person and he used this opportunity to at least make some money. But lastly in this section, we see that Judas is selfish. And this point hopefully isn't lost among us. That in verse 6, it talks about plans of not doing so around a crowd. Why? Well, first of all, this idea is twofold. The text says that they were afraid of people, right? So the leaders that wanted to kill Jesus, they knew that the people were on his side. And if they were going to go try to get him while he was preaching to people or while people were around it was going to complicate the issue. Right? People were going to possibly resist and help Jesus flee the situation or other problems would arise. But I really think the other part of this is that it protected Judas's reputation as well. You think Judas is having Jesus betrayed at night in a place where no one else is around except for these men in which you probably really wouldn't be able to know who did it. The other thing is this allows the chief priests and elders to say Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, which just really hurts him and how that image seems. But Judas isn't going to know. No one's going to really know who Judas was. It's in the middle of the night. I mean, now you're going to know somebody did it. 
but he'll be able to at least just walk away from it. So next we are going to continue on in chapter 22 and verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it, is de- as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. And a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So the first thing we see here in this text is that Judas' betrayal is announced. And we have all been in that situation, you know, when you did something you weren't supposed to, and then somebody walks in, and they say, okay, who did this? And you start getting nervous. I can only imagine how Judas felt where his stomach dropped, and he's just sitting there like, oh, no. Jesus knows exactly what I did. Your heart starts beating, and you're trying not to look suspicious, because right? you're sitting there, you're like, I don't want to give myself up. Judas is trying not to make everyone known. He's like, I'm the one that sold out Jesus, that stabbed him in the back, and that's going to lead him to his death. He's just sitting there, and I can imagine the peril. But then there's this argument that arises in this conversation. So the first part of Judas's actions is the group starts wondering who could be a traitor. It's not just enough that Judas is the one trying not to look suspicious, but now you have the other people in the group thinking, oh, no. I, I didn't betray Jesus. Are people going to think that I'm him? Am I going to start looking like I'm a traitor? And then you have people that aren't the traitor trying to not look suspicious, and they're getting worried, but then all of this devolves, and it gets to a point where they start arguing about who is the best. And sadly, they've gotten caught up in, this, in the worldly desires of what's going on. Not just that, who's a traitor, but who, as I like to say, like, who's the bestest of friends? You know, who's the greatest among them? And Judas's actions started to directly impact not only him, but those around him. He didn't consider how his actions would start sowing discord among the group there, and how instead of him just betraying Jesus and it being between him and getting the money, now it's affecting more and more people as they start fighting among each other and start arguing who's, about, who's the best, and they stop and forget about what's actually truly important, about what's coming. Christ is about to die. He has talked about this. He's saying, you know, my death is coming, and he's said multiple times to his apostles, but they really don't get it. And instead, they're caught up in worldly desires. And how much can we relate to that when we get caught up in the things of life and the things of problems with other people, and we forget about what Christ has said of his second coming? But next, continuing on in verse 47 of chapter 22. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And then in verse 52, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Judas walks up to Jesus, and he greets him like any friend would. Just like I would if I walk up to somebody, and I just give him a handshake. 
Judas is acting like this is no big deal, that he just greets him like it was any other day and like he was any other friend. But for Jesus, this isn't a customary greeting as he knows. This is a slap in the face. It goes beyond just a betrayal, but an idea of that he is greeting him straight to his death. Judas is giving him the kiss of death, if you will. That Judas pronounces his death at this point in time. He's like, you are going to go to your death because of what I am doing. And how disgusting it becomes that Judas greets him like a friend when he really is no friend to Jesus. But we see in the text also that he is treated like a criminal. Now Luke mentions how they came with weapons, but I like the word John uses in his gospel where John actually uses a military word to denote that there are Roman soldiers here coming to take Jesus. That is how far they went to try to have this done. To someone who had never done a single person wrong. Right? Jesus never sinned. He never hurt anyone. And yet they are treating him like he is the worst of people and sending multiple soldiers to go get him. And this really is the end of Judas' friendship with Christ. The next time we see Judas isn't in this chapter, but Matthew 27 actually details what's going on as Judas' guilt overcomes him. Judas decides then to take his own life as his guilt has become so much that his decision to portray Jesus has led to his own demise. It is then that we reach our second friend in this passage, and that is Peter. So we're going to go back and start in verse 31 now and read about Peter in this passage. Verse 31 starting says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers and strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to both prison and death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me. Deny three times that you know me. So first in this passage, I want to see that Jesus and Peter can talk to each other. And you have to have a special relationship, right? Interestingly enough, in this gospel, Luke records that Jesus talks directly to Peter. In all the other gospel accounts, Peter actually asks Jesus, and Jesus responds. But as we recall who Peter is, right, he is pretty much the unspoken leader of the 12 apostles. And as some really like to say, he is the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. Because he continually does things he shouldn't and doesn't think things through. But with that, Peter demonstrates that he has the greatest faith among all the apostles. He's the only one to have ever stepped out. He is the only one to have ever gone on the water, right? Everyone else was scared in these storms. But Peter wasn't. And when Jesus asked Peter, he said, who do you say that I am? Peter gives this wonderful confession of Christ's sonship. And prior to this point in the passage, Peter was one of the two men chosen to go pick the meeting place. This place of such important matter where Jesus 
establishes the Lord's Supper and talks to his apostles. And in John, we get the inner communication of what's going on, where John details at length what is being told to the apostles in this room and how Jesus is trying to comfort them. That room was such a special place to be where they wouldn't be able to be disturbed. That Peter was given responsibility. He is reliable and faithful, but with shortcomings. And, you know, with great skill, I've noticed in life comes a lot of criticism. You don't criticize those that are bad or those that you don't think have potential. In life, the mentors and the leaders of people, they, they go hard on the people who think they have the most skill. They go hard and harshly criticize the ones who think they think they have the most potential because they know that they can take it. Peter is that kind of person. Peter can take the criticism from Jesus because Jesus knows what Peter is capable of. But then Peter hears what he never would want to hear. And it's that he is going to deny Jesus. And it's at this point where, you know, in movies or in books and stuff, when people commonly, if someone tells them, like, oh, I know you're going to back out or you better not lie to me, someone commonly will say, oh, I swear on someone's life. Or, you know, if this is the case, I will give you my most prized possession just to show you that I'm serious about what's going on. Peter does such a thing. He steps this up. And he's like, you know, Jesus, I'll die for you. I'll go to prison for you if that's what it takes. Anything at all I am willing to go through in order to prove to you that I will never deny you. And interestingly enough to me, in this passage, Luke is the only one to have ever added this part of prison. And I think it's interesting when you look at what Luke writes about later. Because Luke is the one who writes about Peter's imprisonment and attempted murder by Herod. Luke here writes about this, and then he will carry on and show that ultimately Peter really did follow through with what he said. And then Christian tradition, tradition after the time, will show us then that Peter does get martyred for Christ. But something interesting that a commentator noted about this passage is that Jesus doesn't look at this as an absence of faith on Peter's part. He tells Peter, he's like, listen, I've prayed for you. And I, hope this, and I hope and pray that this works out for you, but his wording is more than that. We see that Peter is trying to be supportive of Christ. He says, listen, Christ, you have my full support. But Christ is telling him, Peter, you have my support, okay? Listen, Satan demanded you, and I prayed for you. Not only did I pray for you, Peter, but I know you're going to make it out. He doesn't use some words of if or hope or anything like that, but instead Jesus says, when you turn again, he is adamant and he tells Peter, listen, I know you're going to turn back. He's like, I know you're going to get out of this. He's like, when you turn back, the last thing is Peter has to be supportive of his people. Jesus knows Peter is a strong man and strong in the faith. He says, Peter, you have to be the one to get out of this situation because you have to be the one that's supportive of everyone else. When everyone is reeling from this awful mess of me dying, you have to be the one that's strong. You have to support and strengthen those in this group. Because it's going to be hard for them. The support that Jesus offers Peter isn't physical. As Jesus is not only going to leave soon after this passage, but a little later he will ascend. The support that Jesus offers to Peter and to us today is one of spiritual support. Through his spirit and his word. So even with Peter having shortcomings, he still reflects and shows Christ in a strong faith.
But next we see, starting in verse 49, more of a side that we're familiar of Peter. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we not strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now, you probably saw this one coming for Peter. But this is the trait that Peter is most known for. If you think of Peter the Apostle, you have to think that he's impulsive. And while some of us can relate to this more than others, Peter, the text doesn't actually say he did it, but John 18.10 tells us that it is indeed the impulsive leader of the Apostles, Peter, who takes out his sword and strikes a guy. Peter, all throughout his listed actions in the Bible, goes for it every time. He doesn't ever hesitate or stop to think. Sometimes that's worse than others. And he is never afraid to put himself out there and get rebuked. And sometimes I think we can cast the idea of being impulsive in a negative light. And Peter shows us at times why that it's bad. But I also feel like Peter shows us the times when it's good. We just referenced how Peter's faith is shown by him walking on the water. Peter didn't think about the fact that, you know, I've never seen anybody walk on the water before. He looked at Jesus and he went for it. He walked out on that water and his second thought was, how am I going to walk on this? His first thought was, I want to go towards Jesus. And when he gives that confession, when Jesus asks his apostles, he's like, who do you say that I am? And some people are like, "Eh." some people say John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the other prophets. But Jesus is like, who do you say that I am? Peter doesn't skip a beat. And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus doesn't say, you know, okay. Jesus tells him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And Jesus says then, on your confession, I will build this church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. Peter's impulsiveness, while it is an example of who he is as a person, details some of the most beautiful parts of scripture we can see of a human loving and chasing after God. But we also see in this passage that Peter is unafraid. We mentioned that there are military soldiers here coming to take Jesus. Peter does not care one bit about who is there and the fact that in the text earlier, Jesus tells them to take like two swords. Like They are not that well armed to take on a group of men. But Peter doesn't care. Peter goes for it and strikes a man. And you got to think that Peter is thinking about What Jesus has said, Jesus said, listen, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, no, I told you I'm going to die for you, and I'm going to show it. Peter was ready to fight to the death to show that his support was true and that he was very much on Jesus' side. He was unafraid of physical death. But I really think that the thing that Peter feared most is what was going to happen to his friend. He didn't care as much as what would happen to him. And interestingly enough, Peter actually commits a crime. He struck somebody with a sword. Now, obviously, if you were going to charge someone for a crime and you said he cut off his ear, it's really hard to say someone cut off your ear when your ear is still on you. So I kind of think that's probably why nothing happens to Peter. But you still got to think that he assaulted a man and did not care about the consequences because he was trying to show whose side he was on. But next, continuing on in verse 54, then they seized him, And led him away, 
bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said to him, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, and how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, this might seem weird at first, but Peter is a friend who cared. And you'd be like, how did Peter care for Jesus? He just denied him three times. Well, first of all, if we think of our own lives, we know the people that we care about sometimes we still end up hurting. But it's what Peter does in this passage that actually shows that he cares. First thing is that he follows at a distance. Peter is the only one of his men, of Jesus' apostles, that follow him after this incident in the garden. But also than that, they are going to the high priest's house. What did Peter just do? Peter just assaulted the high priest's servant. And given the uh, position of where the high priest is against Jesus and his followers, I'm sure if the servant said something about it, the high priest really wouldn't care if there was evidence of him hurting him. But just saying that he assaulted him, it could very much have done that. So Peter is following Jesus at a distance. While they are taking him away, this group of military men and, and leaders in the Jewish community. But he doesn't care about that. The other thing is, in the other passages, it talks about how Peter goes to warm himself in the fire. And that's why they kindled the fire. You know, they just didn't have a fire for light. They did it because they needed warmth. Obviously, we don't know the temperature at the time, but if Peter's going towards the fire to warm himself, he's at least somewhat not dressed for the appropriate temperature that's outside. And so regardless of how cold he is and regardless of what has happened before and what Peter has done and who is taking Jesus, Peter follows him because he cares. But sadly, even if he has good intentions, Peter denies Christ. And the passage says that Peter remembers the words and I kind of think of it, you know, when I'm reading, you know, it plays out in your head, maybe it's like a flashback where Peter thinks of Jesus talking, or you just like hear the words while the scene's going on in the movie. But in that time, I really think Peter had to have been thinking about just more than those words. Specifically in Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33, where Jesus said to his followers, whoever then acknowledges me before people, I will acknowledge them before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before people, I will deny him also before my Father in heaven. Peter is among these people that have denied Christ, denied association, even though Peter is associated with some of the most amazing acts that have ever been shown by a human. He throws away that association. And you know, you might think, well, maybe Peter didn't understand it, right? If Peter's trying to lay low and look at his friend and look after his friend, he's going to try to deny association. He's like, you know, I'm not with him. I'm just, you know, hanging out here randomly. Peter's trying to make sure he's not caught, possibly. But sadly, Peter doesn't really realize what's going on, as the text shows that 
when the rooster crowed the third time, he realizes what he has done, that he actually has denied Christ, even though he never had possible intentions to. And I'm sure in one way or another, we have denied association with people in our lives, whether it's because of what they've done or we're talking to someone and we're trying to get something from them and we're like, oh, yeah, no, I don't know those kind of people or I don't know that person. We have done that, but what we have all done is deny Christ through the committing of sins and denying his sacrifice on the cross. And many times in life, we choose to associate with people and be with the people that aren't Christ-like. And that's not to say we aren't supposed to go out into the world and do what Christ did. And then the Pharisees would slander him and saying, you're associating with the sinners and tax collectors. But Jesus wasn't. Right? That was who they are. We can't be like the Pharisees, but we can't be like the people of the world. We must not be among them and condone them and accept sin. But we must always associate with Christ and show him to the world. And let God's word work on their hearts. Because while we have all sinned, we have also all denied Christ. But the last part in this passage is the sorrow that Peter feels. With that denial, the text says he went away and wept bitterly. that he was so upset about what goes on. But Luke gives one of the most moving accounts, in my opinion, of the night that Jesus is arrested. In the garden and here, when Jesus looks and him and Jesus meet eyes with one another. And it just hits Peter so hard. And he is so broken up by what's going on. But I can't think again also that Peter isn't thinking of other things. Like in Matthew 18, when Peter asked Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Peter going away weeping bitterly, thinking, how many times am I going to have to ask Jesus forgiveness? One of the things you have to remember is the apostles didn't understand Jesus' spiritual kingdom. Many of them thought this was going to be an earthly kingdom. And they were confused about what was going on. So when Jesus goes to his death, you think about the guilt that Peter feels on his conscience. That he somehow had something to do with Jesus' denial. Maybe I could have fought more in the garden. Or maybe I could have just said, yeah, I know him. And went in there to try to get his friend. But that's what happens when we get down in sin. And we get started in all these what ifs. But as Peter shows, the lowest point in your life is when you get to come back with the most strength. Well, Peter is an emotional wreck. We need to think of how we are to be more like Peter. And that does sin still cut us to the deep? Does it still upset us when we do wrong? Or are we numb to it? But Peter's story doesn't end like Judas's story. Judas's story ends in tragedy. Now, John 21 is arguably one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament. And sadly, we don't have time to go through it, but I'll talk you through it a little bit to see how Peter's story ends. Now, it starts very similar to their calling. The, many of the apostles, they go out, and they're like, you know what, let's just go fish. And they fish all night, and guess what? They catch nothing. Seems pretty similar to the last time they did that in text. And then Jesus is on the shore, and what does Jesus do to them? He says, cast your nets there, just like he did before. And then finally, when the apostle whom Jesus loved says, that's Jesus. Peter doesn't even think for a second. Peter jumps out of that boat and swims. He doesn't care about the fish. He doesn't care about his friends or anything. Peter has one thing on his mind, just as he did the time before when he walked on the water, and it was Jesus. He swims the shore, and when Jesus and him have this conversation where Peter says, Lord, do you love me? And he says, of course I love you. And he says three times, and Peter is then 
redeemed. That's what Peter has in his time as a friend. He is a redemption ark. He is redeemed through Christ. And that is where his life gets to end on a, a high note, where he then ends his life serving Christ and living for him in his church, being a very strong leader, as he is very, one of the main characters in the book of Acts when we read the first part of it. And you might think, well, yeah, this is where our lesson ends. And we have our two friends in this passage. But I would dare to say that very few, if any people, would ever relate to more so being a Judas. And that everyone, in some form or fashion, relates to Peter. And how he has shortcomings, but how he overcomes them through Christ. And how we are redeemed through Christ's blood. But maybe you missed it, because there's a third friend in this passage. And it's Jesus. The one who was backstabbed by the ones who were closest to him. But unlike Judas was a sellout, not for money, but to give his own life. And that he was really the selfless one when those among him were being selfish. And while his followers were arguing who is the greatest and who is the best, Jesus truly is sitting there and he is the best of friends. He is always supportive and where he's always there for us to talk to. For us to have an open line of communication, to pray to him, to be with him. And he showed he cared most of all, more so than following at a distance, but to give his life for all those who denied by him. And he went through the pain and the sorrow that was on the cross for us. But Jesus, unlike Judas and those who put him on the cross and Peter, he was guilt-free. But the one who was guilt-free became guilty so that we could have a chance at a home in life. So when we've been thinking about what type of friend we are, Jesus shows in this passage that really he is the example of a true friend, the best friend you could ever be. But the question is, who are we going to be? While we can never be perfect like Jesus, we can strive to be a friend that is more like what Jesus was to his friends and to us. And so now we have an opportunity for those who have not been able to become friends with Jesus yet, to put on Christ in baptism, or those who have faltered like Peter, who denied him at times, and who need to be restored. If you need to study, if you have any need, please come now as we stand and sing.